Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. School shootings have become increasingly common in the U.S. since the 90s. The mass shootings at Columbine High School in Colorado was one of the first to be highly publicized. And in 2012, the Sandy Hook shooting in Newtown, Connecticut, led to calls for gun reform and an urgency to find ways to protect children. In response, many schools have implemented lockdown procedures and drills, but these exercises that are meant to keep to keep students safe have also been shown to cause anxiety and trauma. This hour, we'll talk about the mental health impact of lockdown drills on students and teachers and explore the role of school resource officers in keeping students safe. Joining us first is Kate Diaz. She's the president of She's the president of the Connecticut Education Association and a high school math teacher in the Manchester School District. You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Kate, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. It's my pleasure to be here, although we certainly would like to talk about happy topics in the future. You know, we were just talking off off air that that would be a pleasure, and we very much look forward to it, although this is also a great way to sort of educate each other about what's Absolutely. happening in schools because, you know, most people do not deal with, deal with it daily, and let's hope that's not the case. Um, but, I mean, right on topic, like you said, we very, very much too often hear about gun violence in schools. So... With your own personal experience, as well as being with teachers on the ground all the time, you know, how do you think teachers feel about lockdowns and also the very, very active fear of active shooters? Well, I think it's an ever-present reality for us, unfortunately. You know, every day we go into our schools and we don't really think about this as a dominant feature of our day because it could weigh us down and really impede our ability to do what we really want to do, which is uplift children. But I think it is in the back of our minds at all times where we're constantly sort of doing threat assessment, if you will, which is not a natural act for a teacher, for us to necessarily look at our space and go, okay, where are the exit points? What are the potential items I could use if an attacker came in? Where am I going to shelter my students? Um, But every time that there's an incident, every time there's something that happens, this becomes in the forefront of a teacher's mind. I know right after Uvalde, I heard from a lot of people about how it really brought that fear, that anxiousness right to the forefront. It brought us back to that place of what if I'm next and what am I going to do? And I think that's a really stressful and anxious space for us to live in. And we do our best to kind of shield kids from that. Uh, but it's real for us. And we have talked about, too, and you mentioned Uvalde. We had chatted after that, really focusing on on teachers' traumas. And with that, too, because when anything happens, you're like you said, it's back to everyone's minds. So 
How often are you thinking about a real scenario? You know, the potential that this could happen at your school. Well, I think that we have an obligation as educators to think about that and to know what would we do and how would we manage the situation, because it's not an abstract thought. It's almost interesting to me that we do fire drills as sort of perfunctory acts, things that we do, but we don't necessarily feel the same level of anxiousness around those. It's the reality that the school shootings are occurring with greater regularity that we can't act like it's something that won't happen. So I think when you kind of ponder it like teachers, we think about it at the beginning of the year when we're setting up our classrooms. We think about it when there certainly is an incident. I know right after Uvalde, I talked to a lot of teachers who said, you know, I'm sitting at the playground, I'm looking at it, trying to figure out where are our points of, you know, protection and shelter and how would I move the kids? We had teachers talking about where do I put bookcases in my classroom so that I can put them in front of a door if I need to. Um, I had other colleagues who said, oh, I need a table added to my classroom because I know I can flip it on its side and hold it up against a door and use that as a sheltering object. So we think about those things as we set up and we establish our classrooms. We consistently assess, do we have what we need in the places we need it? We talk about anchoring our doors and how would we do that successfully. So it's not like it's a daily thing, but it certainly is something with regularity. Um, and certainly anytime there's an incident, we are reassessing, do we have what we need? Do we know what we would do? And I think that's the part that is uh, with greater regularity than I wish it were for teachers. Well, I was going to say, too, it sounds very jarring, actually, to hear that these are these seems to be very tactical, strategic plans that teachers are doing as like prevention work, you know, before a school starts or before semester starts or, or whatnot. But are teachers trained to handle situations, whether it be a lockdown or an active shooter? So when when it's actually happening? So I think we have a lot of conversations and I know um, in the district I worked in, we did go through a little bit more intensive training where the police department came in, walked us through scenarios, walked us through, you know, how would we respond to active shooters um, in addition to sheltering in place? How would we fight back? What would we utilize? And that changed the dialogue in our space. Um, I often laugh. I still, to this day, have this giant glass paperweight on my desk. It's the size of a baseball. And it's very intentionally there, knowing that it's an object I could throw if I needed to. Um, I'm a math teacher. And we talked about, well, what the weight of our graphing calculators are substantial. We could we could use those objects. Um, but not every district goes through a truly tactical experience. We also found that that was really difficult for educators too, because we're not in this because we want to be tactically trained in aggressive tactics to you know, respond to violence where that's not who educators are at their very core. So this is it, jarring is the right word, uh, but practically speaking, we have those conversations more frequently it sometimes is an ad hoc basis where teachers talk to each other and go, well, we saw this happen in, in Uvalde. We saw this happen with Sandy Hook. We saw this happen in Virginia Tech. How are we going to learn from these things so that we're better prepared and more capable of responding um, and knowing what the right thing to do? I think there's an awesome sense of responsibility when you have other people's children and their safety in your hands. And so 
we really want to be capable. Districts talk about it. Uh, we have all have safety committees that are obligated to come up with a plan and a response that is um, communicated and shared and discussed. But the level of uh, engagement in that conversation will vary district to district. Well, and I think the fact that graphing or graphic calculators are even considered as something you can throw at is a pretty amazing you know, point to me. And you mentioned this too, where how do you feel about even having to worry about this? Because this is so real today versus, you know, many, 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 many years ago. Well, I'll be honest. It actually is one of the saddest things in the world is that educators have to think about this. It's a practical thing. I have to do it. It's it's part of my work because that's my job is to keep these kids safe. But the fact that I have a world in which that's a reality is actually pretty sad. Um, and as a high school teacher, I can kind of contextualize it among, you know, young adults. I think my struggle is with like my kindergarten teachers who think about shielding real babies from this kind of thing. It really starts to have um, an emotional impact, right? Like we love our students. We care about them deeply. And the fact that we have to contemplate and think about somebody coming and shooting at them or attacking them is just an, a really overwhelming sensation. And it feels unnatural, to be honest with you, because in our mind, schools are these vibrant, exciting, fun, joyful places. And to have this level of invasion, I think, is really, um, it's overwhelming. When I think with the image you just painted for us, it is jarring and overwhelming, really, uh, to kind of hear that all together. And you mentioning younger students. So I think I'm going to ask this question in two parts, because you can't talk about this without talking about the emotional and mental health toll it takes on both the children and the staff. But how do you, you know, as an adult, as a teacher, go about speaking, you know, discussing this with, with younger students, say, you know, elementary school level? Sure. Well, I think initially it was interesting when the first round of, you know, sheltering in place and how do we train children to do this occurred. I remember my children were young and in school and they came home and they were like, mom, we had to practice because in case there's like a deer gets into our school. And so there was this sort of masking of what we were doing, this idea that we're, we're trying to keep ourselves safe from a, a very imaginary kind of threat. As school shootings, I think, became more prevalent, I am, you know, we had this issue of uh, we can't hide this anymore. We can't mask it. It's real. It is what it is. And so what we had to start doing was being gentle with children and saying there are things there are there are bad people in the world and we have to be prepared and make sure because kids knew that there were school shootings. You couldn't live in the state of Connecticut and not know that Sandy Hook happened. So we had to talk to our kids in a very gentle way, but reassure them that we were going to keep them safe. We were going to do everything in our power to make sure that school was a safe place for them. And that reassurance is really had to land in the place of a classroom teacher because we have that close contact with kids. So from grades, you know, your pre-K all the way through grade 12, you were really talking to kids about this is real. It did happen. We're not going to act like it didn't, but we've got your back and we're going to care for you and we're going to make sure that you're safe. Um, but it has been an interesting evolution because younger and younger students are very aware 
of what this threat looks like. Well, we've been talking about how this is something that is in the forefront of adults and teachers, but it's also in the forefront of students' mind as well. And I'm wondering, too, if, if you're hearing that are students becoming numb to it? Because I've spoken with high school students who say, oh, you know, they hear an alarm, they're just kind of like, whatever. And even as a journalist, you know, we're not supposed to feel anything, right? But when I heard that, it's just, you know, your heart drops because you're just thinking, it could be an actual incident. So is that something that you've encountered too, perhaps with your older students where they're just very much like, well, this is our everyday lives now? Oh, it absolutely is. Um, the practice of a lockdown, uh, we've instituted in my school district a multi, like a series of lockdowns, right? We have soft lockdowns, medical lockdowns, hard lockdowns, and they have varying degrees of response. Sometimes we shelter in place. Uh, sometimes we literally will have to kind of practice being in the corner out of eyesight. Sometimes we just stay in our classroom and go about our business. So there is a sense of normalcy to a threat. And that is absolutely the probably the saddest outcome of this is that we as a society have normalized threatening children to the point where the children just assume, well, okay, you know, today's maybe not our day, but we'll practice, we'll follow what we're supposed to do. Uh, but it is normal for them. And when you talk to high school kids, you know, that's not something that they necessarily are comfortable with. They're not okay with it. Uh, they don't like that this goes on, but they're just aware that they're a little bit on the helpless side of things. Um, so I think that's a little bit disheartening that we have normalized this as just sort of, what are you going to do? There's nothing we can change. So we have to be um, as defensively proactive as we can. And that's one of those things that it's like, holy cow, right? Like that's an unbelievable thing that we've normalized for kids. No, absolutely. And and with with kids vocalizing their uncomfortableness or their numbness, do you ever hear your students vocalize their fears? And, and how do you think that has an impact on their sort of long-term emotional health? So it's funny, kids are very straightforward and even high school students will just be real direct. And I taught through 9-11. I was in school when 9-11 occurred. I was in school for Sandy Hook. I was in school for Columbine. Um, and all of those incidents, you know, they it, it makes it real that's that we're not as safe as we want to believe we are. And we've we've popped children's bubble of innocence in that regard, right? Like I remember growing up and not thinking about any of these things, right? I felt really safe. I knew, I, I mean, I'm of the generation where we left the house and didn't come back till dinner, right? Like that's my normalcy. And these kids have a, a safety bubble that's really been popped. And they, like us as educators, don't necessarily wear that on their sleeve every single day, but it is um, an honest part of their reality where they're very straightforward about, you know, I'm uncomfortable. Or when certainly an incident occurs, kids will come in and kind of share with you, this is really stressful. This is really traumatic. I can't believe this happened again. Uh, we have to have the conversation uh, with high school kids. You actually have to let them talk about how they feel validate yeah of course you know of course yours this scares you why wouldn't it right we and then we really do have to go back to that place of okay well what do we do here to try and um take control of our situation to put ourselves in a space where we can find those aspects of safety and security that we anchor in because i think 
we can't let the fear overtake us. And that's really the lesson with kids that we talk about is fear is appropriate, right? Fear saves you. Um, but fear shouldn't rule your life. So know what you're what you're dealing with, understand your opportunities to be um, you know, protective and uh following, you know, obviously as an educator, one of my roles with the kiddos is always, listen, kids, if a crisis occurs, your job is to follow me because my job is to keep you safe. And I want them to have that reassurance. And listen, I've taught 17 and 18 year olds. And when they, you know, look you in the face and talk about this stuff, they're as scared as a seven-year-old. This is terrifying. So my job is to help them feel like they don't need all the answers because I'm going to help them. And so there's a real kind of back and forth that we have with the kids. And I do think it's taken a toll when you talk about feeling safe Um, and it changes how they approach social scenarios. It changes how they go into the world. Uh, I don't know that we can change that. I think different kids experience this differently based on their own personal traumas in their lives. So we have to be sensitive to that. And I think that's the piece I know as an educator, we really try and hone into, you know, if you're, you have students who are victims of violent crime, talking about these school shootings become really difficult as opposed to a student who's really never experienced that level of trauma. So we try as educators to think about what is trauma-informed instruction look like? How do I, as an educator, support all kids in this conversation? Well, sounds like it's very important to continue this conversation. We're hearing from Kate Diaz. She's the president of Connecticut Education Association. And we've been talking about the school experience in the age of lockdowns. She'll be staying with us. Coming up next, we'll be speaking with the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement about the impact that these lockdowns are having on students. You can also join the conversation. Are you a teacher or do you have kids who are experiencing lockdowns? We want to hear from you. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go Team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're talking about what goes on inside the classroom during active shooter lockdown drills and how students are being impacted. Every time we have one of those lockdown drills, like 
you always just think to yourself that those kids felt safe too. And in the back of your mind, you know it could always happen to you. That was Trumbull Middle School student Bailey Chapman, who spoke to Connecticut Public's Frankie Graziano in 2021. Bailey was part of a student group working with Sandy Hook Promise to prevent gun violence. And joining the conversation now is Dr. David Schoenfield. He's a director of National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement. Thank you so much, David, for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, David, we just heard a quick clip from Bailey and wanted to get your thoughts about what Bailey has to say. Well, first off, in, in, in the bereavement field, we talk about a threat to the assumptive world. So there are certain assumptions we make every day that allows us to get up and go about our day without worrying about everything that could go wrong. And then you hear about some incident that happens. It doesn't even have to be in your community. doesn't even have to be in the same country. And all of a sudden you realize, wait, I made certain assumptions that I would be safe when I was in school, or I made certain assumptions my child would be safe if I sent them to school. And that is an assumption. And then all of a sudden you feel a lot more vulnerable um, and concerned. And so it's a that's a phenomenon that we see regularly, which is why even though um, school shootings are still relatively rare, they are much more than they should be, obviously. But even though they're relatively rare, just a few uh, will make people feel very vulnerable. And you've also been listening to the conversation with Kate Diaz with the Connecticut Education Association, who is still with us this segment. Did anything that she say uh, jump out to you or do you echo some of uh, some of the points that we've been talking about earlier? I think she made some very valid, uh, valid points. And I think she also demonstrates, although I don't know her personally, other than uh, meeting her today, um, the type of um, way we would want educators to present, to be honest to children, but also to have some degree of confidence, but not arrogance. It's a sense that, yes, there are some dangers in the world, but generally this is a safe place. We consider this to be a safe place for you to be. Um, and I will also personally do what I can to keep you safe. But um, she has a nice way of presenting herself. I'm, I'm not sure all educators are able to do that to the same degree because they may have their own concerns, their own emotional issues, their own anxiety, for example. But I think if more educators were like that, um, that would make it easier for kids. Right. And of course, we're certainly talking about situations that can be very triggering for not just the teachers, but for students as well. And we do know that um, some of these lockdowns are built to be realistic to an actual situation. So on that note, how is that impacting the mental and emotional health of students and teachers? Well, there is, um, it's most school districts, I think, now do have uh, drills and exercises, which include active shooter drills, um, it, but they are not standardized. So they may be done in different ways in different communities. And so uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics came out with a policy statement a little over a year ago, where we talked about the participative participation of children and adolescents in these live crisis drills and exercises. And so what you had talked about was some of these drills try and simulate an actual shooting experience. So there have been, uh, we don't know how often this happens, but at least a few cases where the children have actually been deceived, where they haven't been told it's a drill. 
and they are led to believe this is an actual shooting that's occurring in the school. So we think that type of deception, whether that involves children or whether that involves the staff, is inappropriate and shouldn't be occurring. I think most people would agree with that, but we did feel the need to come out with a statement about that because it has happened in, in cases around the country. There also are uh, simulations that are done where they're they try and make them more realistic. So they might, for example, use real weapons. They may use the sound of gunfire. Um, they may also do um, use makeup uh, to try and simulate blood or gunshot wounds. Um, and they may also use what we call um, kind of aggressive or predatory acting where someone pretends to be a shooter and uh, moves quickly through the hallway or tries aggressively to open a door. Those type of situations um, or drills and exercises do escalate the amount of anxiety among participants and can be very disturbing to children and to adults as well. So the American Academy of Pediatrics has actually recommended that children not participate in these high intensity drills um, unless they are adolescents who give informed consent and uh, perhaps they are you know, planning to be a first responder or a paramedic, and they do wish to participate in those drills, but that should be with informed consent. So I want to come back to the intensity with you, David, in terms of how it impacts the students and teachers. But first, Kate, I want to come back to you real quick with what David just said. You know, when you have an actual lockdown or a situation where the school safety is questioned, is that something that you consider during the lockdown? And and on that too, you know, how do you get back to a normal class when you've had such a, it sounds traumatic experience, um, even though it's, you know, quote, quote, just a lockdown? So I think uh, the more realistic the situation, the harder it is to go back to any sort of uh, regular activity, if you will. So I think for us, the practical is to read the room, to to read the situation, to understand where your students are at, and to be, again, honest about, wow, that, that was difficult, right? That was hard. Um, I remember I had a lockdown once that extended for two hours. I was in a middle school classroom. There was a real threat assessment. We were in that classroom sitting in a corner together for hours while we kind of processed what is really happening here? And, you know, you have to understand that these kids are really experiencing something unsettling. Your job is to say, look, you know, we've, we are just going to sit here together. We're going to be in this space together. You try and find a way to be calm and supportive and understanding and soothing, right? Like that's part of the deal. Um, it depends, right? If, after that, there was no going back to normal. We had those kids pretty amped up. It was about bringing them back down and saying, okay, guys, we're going to be okay today. Um, we utilize all the resources we have. Maybe it's games, maybe it's activities, maybe it's just calmly sitting together and, and saying, you know, all right, and quietly, gently transitioning off of that moment, right? How do we get them from this really amped up anxiety ridden moment into a calmer space? Um, and, you know, David's right that it takes time for us to develop the skill set of being able to do this work. So we have to, as educators, talk to each other so that we have the skill set that we've practiced that conversation. You can't have that conversation for the first time with kids. You have to have that conversation for the first time with other adults. Okay, how do we move the kids from this real anxious space into a calmer space? What's that conversation going to look like? Um, how do we gently do that with 
without disregarding how they feel. You can't just tell them, okay, you're all right now. You have to get them to a space where they go, yep, I'm I'm good now, Mrs. Diaz, I'm good. And I can't tell them they're good. We have to just help them get there. I think that if we have short incidents, um, I've been through those where it's a short incident. It's a, a, a quick, like, sometimes we have things that happen and um, it's over within 15 minutes. Usually those, you can look at the kids and you're like, how are we doing? We good? And actually within probably 15, 20 minutes, you're back to kind of the traditional um, pace of your classroom. But you can't act like those things don't happen. And that's what we really want to develop in our skill set and our toolkit as educators is how do I continue on with the day? Because that is our obligation um, without disregarding where we've been. And so I think, you know, there are times, I mean, I certainly had the experience where uh, an incident occurred during a test. And I had to kind of throw in the towel on the test and go, okay, guys, we're we're not going to actually go back to that test right now. You know, let's all catch our breath. Let's be, you know, pause for a moment. You're not going to finish this test today. It's okay. Life will life will go on if we don't do that today. So with um, what? Oh, I was going to say. So with what Kate just said, David, I want to ask too. You know, is is the fear of having a lockdown or having those disruptions in a fairly sort of a, a, a common way, I suppose, does that impact the daily lives of students? What's going to impact the daily lives of students? And I think Kate gave a very nice description of how a gifted educator can try and read the room and help the children cope with a difficult situation. But I will say that even, even no matter how gifted you are and how sensitive you are, it's hard to read the emotional impact on 30 children. Um, some children have pre-existing anxiety conditions. They may also have had trauma in their lives that are unknown to the educator. Um, and so it may seem like they're quiet uh, and not impacted, but they might actually be quite afraid. Um, I, I know of families who have children who they keep them home when they're going to have a drill in the school because the child can't tolerate being in the school. Um, I, I know there are children sometimes who have been victims of domestic violence. And so that when they are um, asked to hide in a portion of the classroom from someone who's dangerous in a drill, they go right back to what it felt like hiding in their house because a family member was being physically harmed. And they were you know, terrified that they would be harmed or that person would be seriously hurt. So you won't always know the impact it has on individual children. Um, and so you do your best, as Kate described. I think that's all that an educator can do. But we have to realize this does have an impact. The, the only other thing I will say is that Kate talked about normalizing these experiences. And so when people come up to me and they say, well, you know, school shootings, that's our new normal. I usually look at them and I say, there's nothing normal about children being murdered in school. And as soon as we call it normal, it kind of suggests we don't have to do anything about it. And so I know that's not what she was suggesting. She's actually talking about the problem of normalizing it. But I do think we have to, as a group, realize that we can implement these drills and exercises, but they do have impact on children. They do uh, cause acute difficulties for them, but it also has kind of a pernicious quality. You know, if if we have to keep having these drills about the bad people coming to hurt us, it changes and distorts how you feel about the safety of your community. Um, it, it has a quality that isn't just linked to the actual drill. We want people to, we want children to grow up thinking 
members in their community are there to help them and to promote their growth and well-being. But this distorts it some. So it's a, I think it's a sad reality, but I, I still try never to refer to it as a normal experience. Well, I think the thread here, too, both of you have mentioned the word sad describing this situation. And I don't know if anyone can really argue against that. And with what David just said, and I think Kate, you want to say something. Um, but on top of that, we've been focusing the conversation about children, but also teachers have a lot of anxiety over this as well. So what would you like to see school districts, Kate, to do more to help with teachers' anxiety? Well, I think, you know, one of the things Connecticut, actually, our legislature this past session reduced the number of um, shelter in place drills that we need to do by statute, really saying like, listen, if you pra- if you think about this as a district, you talk about it, you have a plan, maybe we don't need to practice it with such regularity. Because as David pointed out that, you know, this is a reinforcement of potential danger, and that maybe that's not something we want as dominant in in our faces as educators and as students. We want to have a plan. We want to feel secure. But maybe we don't need to practice uh, being physically threatened. And I think that was a smart move on the part of our legislature to say, can we back off this um, and reduce these experiences? And I think that we have to remember teachers are people. And just like all of our children have had life experiences outside of this school that impact their response to incidents, so do teachers. We have teachers who have domestic violence um, and certainly trauma in their households who have probably had to shelter from a violent situation. And so it is triggering. I remember when in Manchester, we went through our our district did a really intense training and I had to help get teachers out of it because they were like, I can't do this. I went, I was in, you know, a veteran. I can't sit in my school and practice being shot at. I was in Iraq, right? Like they're sitting there going, no way I'm doing that. And so we need to remember that that impacts our educators as well. And I think it is hard for us to acknowledge that the educators can be as vulnerable as the kids in these situations, but they can. And so being sensitive and aware and figuring out how do we support teachers in the face of of these events, right? I know I did a lot of work with teachers after Uvalde, talking them through their emotions. Um, And there really wasn't widespread conversation, particularly in Connecticut, where we keep Sandy Hook in our mind, We care that this happened in our state. We care that this happened to our colleagues. And so every time there's a a shooting or an incident in a school, it's really personal. And we actually don't do enough to support teachers and to talk about that. And we're going to dive deeper into school resource officers in the next segment. But Kate, really quickly, I want to ask, do teachers feel safer with SROs in schools? So I think it, it, most of the time my teachers say that they do. Um, I think that I'm very sensitive to the fact that that issue is highly determinant on the impact of the community. And so I'm a big fan of, of making this a community-based decision that serves your schools, your teachers, your families, and your officers in a really positive way. So I think most teachers that I've talked to in Connecticut are are comfortable with a school resource officer. They have developed a relationship with this person, feel that there's a sense of um, somebody, I'm working to have the kids back and somebody's got my back. And I think when those relationships are built in that way, 
um, it can be really positive to the school district. Um, I am aware that there are places where that doesn't work as well and sensitive to that. And, and so what that conversation looks like needs to be built around the needs and supports of a community. Um, but I know I've had really positive, I can speak personally, I come from a district that leans heavily on school resource officers. Um, and those individuals are members of our community. They engage with our students. They're really involved. Um, they're not you know, threat assessment individuals on a total basis. They really, you know, these are basketball coaches. These are uh, people who talk to kids who walk the hallways and, you know, are really engaging. So in that practice, I've had my personal experience has always been yes. You've been listening to Kate Diaz, who is the president of Connecticut Education Association, and David Schoenfield, who is the director of the National Center for School Crisis and Bereavement. Thank you both so much for joining us today. And coming up next, we hear from a veteran police and school resource officer. Stay with us. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We've talked about the fear that school-based violence has had on teachers and students, but a common solution that many schools have turned to are school resource officers, or SROs. We have Mo Kennedy to discuss how SROs can impact the school environment. Mo is an executive director for the National Association of School Resource Officers. He was also a professor. Uh, police officer for 25 years in Hoover, Alabama, including 12 years as an SRO at the Hoover City Schools. Mo, welcome to where we live today. Thank you for having me. This is going to jump straight to it. You know, can you tell us about the role SROs play in schools on a day-to-day basis? Yeah, I think it's important to, for everyone to understand that there is a federal definition of a school resource officer. And many times, you know, when I'm dealing with uh, reports of wrongdoing by an officer in a school, uh, it turns out they don't actually fit uh, the definition. And so it's important to understand these are have to be professional sworn law enforcement officers. Uh, these men and women also have to be deployed in a community-based policing approach. And it's really critical that they're very carefully selected and specifically trained uh, to work in this environment. Um, this is this is the most unique assignment in law enforcement, and it's very dependent on relationships. So when we think about uh, what SROs priorities are through the day, I love the way uh, Kate laid some of this out that, yes, we're in the hallways with the students. We're engaged in informal uh, underlying counseling uh, was helping uh, students with with issues or problems as well as staff uh, so the relationships are really the foundation of everything that we do one of the thing that I would add is that you know SROs are not the solution to school violence they are a part of the solution this is a this must be a team approach for this to be effective at all and with what Kate was describing too, you know, SROs are very involved in the hallways, like you said, with with students and whatnot, and also with the community. Have you found SROs in schools have helped with students and faculty feeling safe? 
Yeah, there's actually a, an interesting study out of the University of Virginia, uh, just gosh, about uh, 18 months ago, maybe that that gives strong indicators um, that students of all races, uh, interestingly enough, it's broken down in that manner that they they feel safer with the SRO there. Also, and this is, of course, just anecdotal, I, I've seen that in my career as an SRO and the other SROs I worked with and how uh, how much they became ingrained in that school community and 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 the way that students felt about them. You could just see it. So uh, so, again, a little bit of hard, hard data there and a little bit of anecdotal. Right. And also with because you uh, you spend time with the students, you spend time with the staff. So it makes sense that, you know, they're seeing you in action. They're talking with you in person and spending time with you. But have you heard from parents about having SROs in schools? Is that is that something that you're able to sort of gauge what what their thoughts are on that? Yeah. You know, that's something that, that we've been really interested in in trying to track as much as possible. The, the University of Virginia study covered some of that. But but again, I'll go back to anecdotally. It, it, you know, the engagement with parents in my community, uh, I will just say, was through the roof. It, it, it was something that, uh, again, I think had a real impact on how we did our jobs and how the students saw, you know, our role in that environment. Uh, there are some organizations across the country, uh, parents' organizations that um, we have the opportunity to engage with at, at times. Stand with Parkland is one of those uh, run by Tony Montalto. Uh, very, uh, again, very supportive of school resource officers and what we do. Uh, so that's, you know, in terms of gauging that, um, that's some of the best information I can give you. And we've been talking about the way lockdowns are are done in, in school districts. And of course, it's not a one size fit all. It really depends on which school you're in. Uh, how do you think SROs contribute to the lockdown protocols in schools that have SROs? Do they play a role in that? I was really hoping you would ask me about, about <laughs> this very issue because uh, I was a school resource officer when the Columbine massacre occurred. And of course, that day changed everything for us. That was uh, kind of the epicenter, uh, really, that, that, that changed how we respond to these situations. SROs should have uh, a very active role in assisting uh, the schools uh, with these lockdown procedures, lockout. Uh, evacuation, whatever it may be. They should be very actively involved in that. However, um, just a, a couple of years ago, and this has been an ongoing relationship with the National Association of School Psychologists and with Safe and Sound Schools, a Sandy Hook initiative, um, we put out some, some very clear guidance on the issue of armed assailant drills. Uh, so the lockdowns certainly are included in that and how how dangerous it really can be uh, to do those in a highly sensorial manner, uh, such as full-scale uh, scenarios, if you will. Uh, and, and, and really, we could be doing more damage um, to adolescents in particular by doing that. It, it really should be approached as a drill, not a full-scale scenario. You know, I, I've seen some situations where, um, where uh, agencies have used blanks, if you will, in a gun to, to uh, replicate that sound of a firearm going off. You know, we don't historically start a fire to do a fire drill, and we don't wait until there's a tornado warning to do a severe weather drill. So I like applying the same logic to a drill that we're going to do with students, that we keep it as simple as possible, 
that they are just learning a little bit of muscle memory, if you will, and learning to follow their teacher in this situation. Well, and of course, the purpose of SROs is to protect students from violence. And and Kate has mentioned earlier too, she's has she has great personal experiences, but also know that for some, it's not the best experience. And having an SRO in schools for some students have said that doesn't make them safer. Now, especially after the murder of George Floyd, some schools also got rid of their SRO officers. Is that something that you've seen, or you know, what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's an interesting trend we're watching. And, you know, I, I'll go back to the Columbine massacre. Uh, Kate mentioned 9-11. You know, those are those are moments in time where the pendulum swings all the way to the opposite direction. And we have a difficult time finding balance. Um, and I certainly saw that occur, especially, uh, you know, uh, like into the first week of June 2020, when Minneapolis uh, School District uh, removed their SROs. Now, keep in mind, of course, most schools weren't back in session uh, anyway at that time. Uh, but but 32 other school districts followed suit. Um, and so now we're seeing a reverse trend where as students came back from the pandemic, um, some of these schools were dealing with rises in levels of violence. Uh, so they have chosen to bring SROs back in. Uh, Fremont, California, for example, has done a fantastic job. In, in with that transition. Alexandria, Virginia, uh, Denver Public Schools uh, just recently, and we've had great conversations with them, and um, we're, we're gonna be honored to help them uh, prepare their new SROs to come back into that environment. But it is, it, it is, um, you know, it, it really is a, almost a regional type thing where in some areas uh, you see SROs being very much welcomed and wanted by the community and others not so sure. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, education is important in regards to that, just as I talked about what an SRO is and what they are not. And we only have a couple minutes left here, but I do want to ask, you know, there is concern, too, that having officers in school contributes to the youth to prison pipeline impacting black and brown students. Can you talk about this? You know, is there a way we can combat that? Yeah, I, I have two thoughts on that. One is um uh, uh, there is uh, data from the Department of Justice that we follow very closely. And um, the, the current trend shows from 1996 uh, to 2021, juvenile arrests in this country dropped by 74%. And part of that is because there's been some really good juvenile justice reform during that period of time. But it also happens to coincide with the rank with the rise of the ranks of school resource officers. 1996 was about when it, this really began in terms of schools looking at SROs as a component of their school safety plan. And so, as SROs came into that situation, now we see uh, the, those those trends fall in terms of of the levels of juvenile arrests. I also think that it's important to understand that when SROs come through our training, our officers come through our training before they become SROs, we, we really do uh, hit the point hard that the way you handle arrest in, in a school situation is nothing like you would have to do out on the street. When you think about the other uh, support elements you have around you, counselors, mental health specialists, school administrators, there are so many other ways that you can handle a disorderly conduct situation, for instance, than to have to make an arrest. And actually, with what you just said, um, really quickly, you know, 
about a minute left. Here in Connecticut, we do have talks here about possibly replacing SROs with guidance counselors. You know, what are your thoughts about that? Two very different uh, professions. Uh, it, uh, I, I will say it doesn't make sense to me. What I would say is we need more of both. Uh, again, the carefully selected and specifically trained SROs and guidance counselors, we don't have enough. I've been in the education world enough to know that we need more guidance counselors and we need more mental health specialists. They're our teammates. We're, we're not adversarial with them. They're our teammates and we work together uh, for the good of students. Mo Kennedy is the executive director for the National Association of School Resource Officers. Mo, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Stacey Addo and Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. And thank you so much for listening. Mm-hmm.